see another 10 years of meditation hall filled with <laughs> chairs like that. <laughs> That's what we need at the forest refuge. <laughs> well, we've spoken about the sudden awakening to the essential, empty, wakeful nature of mind. The analogy of the mind like water, fluid, open, responsive. We've spoken about how the mind freezes, how the mind contracts in relationship to attachment and aversion to different bodily sensations, moments of contraction, when we get distracted in thought, we're just carried away by thought, it's a kind of fixation. When we're in the grip of different emotions, then the mind is frozen in some basic way. And so the need for the gradual cultivation of the recognition of the mind's nature, the unfrozen quality, There are two other arenas I'd like to complete (coughs) in terms of how the mind gets fixated. And these are more uh, more subtle than sensations or thoughts and emotions. There can be a contraction in the mind or an identification of fixation around meditative states states of calm, states of peace, where when the mind does uh, attain some level of concentration, it gets extremely uh, peaceful you know, and quiet. But this quiet or this peace or this calm is not the nature of mind itself. It's a state, it's a constructed, wholesome state. It's not that it's bad. It's just there, there can be a tendency to identify with the peace or with the calm or with the happiness, you know, in the sense of, oh, now I have it. In the Dzogchen tradition, they call this the fixation on, I may have the order wrong, bliss, clarity, non-thought. <coughs> and so it's kind of strange because here we are, we think that's what we're practicing for a little bliss and clarity and non-thought. And yet they're pointing out those states, those experiences themselves are just mind states, even though they're wholesome mind states. And we want to be careful that we don't become identified with them, contract in them. In the Theravada tradition, the the same thing is pointed out. In the polytext, it's called or the stage is called the corruptions of insight. You know, where we practice, 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 and then we get to a stage where there's tremendous clarity and light and joy and rapture and calm and equanimity. All the factors of enlightenment are very strong. And then the teacher says, oh, those are just corruptions of insight. You know, at first, 
one is a little chagrined. <laughs> but it's very important. That's a very important place of instruction because it's easy, it would be easy just to stay cruising, you know, in those states and not actually further free the mind from identification with that in order to come back or settle back into the mind essence or to rest in the mind free of any fixation, free of any attachment. Here's where a teacher is very helpful because it's very hard to do this by oneself. You know, it's, uh, these states are very, very seductive and often we don't even know that we're attached. At one point I was in Burma. I had been there, uh, this was I guess in the, uh, like 85. Um, I was practicing with the Pandita. I had been there in the monastery for a few months. Actually, spirit was there, then, I think. <laughs> uh, and so my practice was going quite well. And I got to a point where I was describing to Upadita the most minute changes, you know, and experiences of impermanence on the most subtle level, seeing how each sensation would kind of arise in little sequential dots and then disappear. And I just, I was really getting into it. And I go in and I was feeling really good about my practice. And all he told me was, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was really right on. Because my mind had been getting so into the subtle level that I had not seen. I was creating a sense of self in my observation of these subtle phenomena. And I was very unknowingly attached to seeing it. And so again and again, the lesson is the same. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. It's always a question not of what we get or what we see or... It's not that move. It's always the move of release, of non-grasping, non-clinging, non-identification. So we need to pay attention. You know, and. In this respect, the tool of mental noting can be really helpful because when we're experiencing different meditative states of mind, if we're able to note it, you know, calm, peace, stillness, whatever it is, bliss, just the act of noting in that very moment releases the mind from attachment. So it's not that it necessarily has to be continuous, but occasional notes there can show us the degree of attachment and the possibility of release. The last arena of attachment is the one that is the hardest to see. So we're going from, you know, like sen from sensations to thoughts to emotions to these meditative states. This last place of attachment and identification is where we live almost all the time. And that is our identification with awareness itself. Now, and even as we're able to see all the, ch all the phenomena of mind and of our experience as coming and going and we begin to get a sense of being mindful of them and aware, for the most part there is this subtle or not so subtle identification with the one who's knowing it all. 
Okay, I'm the one who's knowing <coughs> the thoughts, the emotions. Through this identification with awareness, taking the awareness to be who we are, we create the sense of an observer or of a witness. You know, and often in some traditions, even the language of the tradition uh, reinforces that. You know, witness consciousness or observing. But there's a danger here. There is witnessing, there is observing. But if we begin identifying with awareness, we create a sense of self in that observation. So how to work with this? How to free the mind from that identification? One way which I have been playing with and finding <coughs> quite helpful is to relanguage the description of what's happening, even mentally. So instead of languaging it, you know, I'm observing a thought, I'm observing a feeling, and so on, relanguage it in the passive voice. For example, instead of I'm knowing a sound, a sound being known, a thought being known, an emotion being known, as a description of the moment's experience. Because as we put it in the passive voice, <coughs> just as a device, at least conceptually, we're taking the self out of it. Right? And so it becomes easier to access the experience of that without the sense of self. So there's sitting and a sound arises, sound being known. That's all. We don't need to add anything more. We don't need to add the sense of an observer. And then we take it one step further, and this is, leads us right into the mystery of sudden awakening. Sound being known, or sensation being known, the next question is, known by what? And this is the mystery. I mean, right now. You know, it's not a mystery after 20 years of practice. It's the mystery in every moment. Sounds are appearing, they're being known. Known by what? Is there anything to find? It's quite amazing. <laughs> this mystery of awareness. There is nothing there to find, and yet the knowing, the cognizing is going on moment after moment. And so just to hold that, to hold, to hold the interest. And that's really all that it takes, because as we hold the interest in what's happening, in the mystery of what's happening, we are in the experience of it. It's nothing we have to do to have the experience, it's happening all the time. But usually, or normally, we just don't pay attention. <laughs> We're just caught up in the movie of it all, instead of dropping back into the mystery of it. So in this way, as we practice with very simple things, you know, just with the breath, all the same usual objects of attention. It's not that we you know, go into some esoteric world. 
the breath or sensations, the same quality. It's just the sensations of the breath being known moment after moment. Well, if we hold that, the breath is pointing us back to the nature of awareness. And this is tracing back the radiance. Taking any object, the breath or a sound or a sensation or a thought or a sight, it's being known, known by what? And just rest in that experience. And as we do that, over and over again, short moments many times, we begin to get familiar with that nature of awareness and the view of it gets clarified, as I mentioned yesterday. You know, we may think we're in just the awareness and then we're with it, with it, with it, and suddenly there's a further dropping back. So it's a process of clarifying this understanding. There's one teaching of the Buddha which is very ordinary, and yet I think is really the key for releasing us from the attachment and fixation on phenomena. And it's something we all know, but which we rarely pay significant attention to. And that is the experience of impermanence. And when you read the Buddha's teaching, it's just all over, it's on every page. Reinforcing the understanding that all conditioned phenomena are arising and passing away. And we know it, I mean, we know it intellectually, this is not a hard concept. And we know it on a lot of different levels, but I think somehow we don't always, or even often, keep the awareness of impermanence present moment to moment. (coughs) Now it's said that the Buddha, before his enlightenment, called his Bodhisattva, that he reflected, why should I keep on seeking that being subject to change and impermanence, why should I keep seeking that which is subject to change? Why should I make that, you know, the basic reference point of my life, seeking impermanent things? And it's, it's astounding to me that this is also what we do, mostly. That we live our lives often just in anticipation of the next hit of experience, whatever it is, you know, the next weekend or the next vacation or the next relationship or the next meal or the next breath. It's the same thing in meditation. It's as if we're always or often toppling forward as if the next moment will bring us to completion. Now what's so astounding about this habit is that when we look back at all the experiences we've had so far, we see that none of them have done it. When we look back at the experiences we've had, they're all kind of dreamlike at this point. Yeah, it, even this morning, where's this morning? 
you know, or yesterday, or last week, or last year, all the experiences which in the moment or in anticipation loom so large, as soon as they're over, there's nothing much there. It's this world of dream, dreamlike quality. When we look back, we see that very clearly. And yet over and over again, when we look ahead, we get entranced by the next possibility. And so that's what keeps the mind pulled in or identified <coughs> or attached or fixated, frozen in the ice. I just want to <laughs> repeat something I mentioned yesterday in this regard. <coughs> Given that all of our experiences is just part of a passing show, it has no lasting no lasting inherent quality at all. Remembering then that it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. So we don't need to wait for some other experience not to cling to. We can practice not clinging now. And then all of these changing experiences, instead of being the vehicle of our delusion become the vehicle of awakening. The problem is not in the experiences. They are what they are. And they're changing. If we understand, if we're seeing the impermanence of them, and again, not seeing it or knowing it intellectually, sort of just the vivid experience, moment after moment, when we're in that experience of the impermanence, then each of these experiences become the vehicle for our waking up, for the sudden awakening into the nature of mind through the mind that does not cling with, does not take anything as I or mine. I think the problem is that <coughs> this, this truth of change is so ordinary that we just overlook it. You know, it's so much, it so much characterizes everything that we have ceased to pay attention to it. And so are therefore missing the opportunity to practice the mind of no clinging, of no grasping. And sometimes just even in the most ordinary activities, things can get illuminated so clearly. Now just when we go for a walk, just be watching how the experience keeps... Uh, one of the images which comes to mind is just like the water over a waterfall that just keeps... you know, where it doesn't stop for a moment. It just keeps falling over and falling over and falling over. Well, our experience is like that, even in the most ordinary things. You, know, you go for a walk and the sensations of the body at each step and the sights and the sounds and the feel of the air. If we're paying attention, we'll see. It's just this flow of constant change. So what is it that we value in our lives? And what is it that we most value? We can value many things. 
But what is it that we most value? Is it something which is itself changing and impermanent? Or can we order our lives around what the Buddha called the deathless, that which is not subject to birth and death and change? I think that's really where the freedom is to be found. In all of this discussion about how we relate to different experiences and seeing their impermanence, you know, and watching with the breath or with sensations, sounds, thoughts, images, emotions, watching when the mind is free and released, watching when it's fixated, I think again we need to come back and hold it all or frame it all with the understanding of the relative and absolute levels. Because on the absolute level, it is all empty. There's nothing to do at all. Everything is fine. There's no one there. It's just the dance of impersonal elements. And yet on the relative level, a certain wise discrimination is needed. So I'll just give a few examples of this. First, this is just a line from Rumi expressing, in a way, the union of these two levels, even as we discriminate between them. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. <laughs> so on one level, it's just living in the nowhere that we come from. That nature of mind, the essence of mind, Buddha nature, whatever word we like. And at the same time knowing that we have an address here and we have to pay attention. Just a couple of examples. On the absolute level, we could be with all the sensations in our body and seeing it all as empty phenomena. You know, and, and often in our practice, we're in that state where it's all equal and we're in that mind state of no preference. And it's just arising and passing elements. Okay, so we could talk about it's that representing at least the absolute level. On the relative level, Sometimes, for example, pain is a danger signal. No, you put your hand in fire. Oh, burning, burning, burning. No, you want to take your hand out. And so we have to pay attention and just play with what's appropriate in different situations. Maybe for people who are totally at one with the absolute level, and I read stories like this, I, you know, maybe they could put their hand in fire and it wouldn't burn them. Just from some completely different understanding, you know, of the elements. So if we're in that place, it's not a problem. But if we're not, then it's no use pretending that we are. 
we have to pay attention to where we are and our level of understanding. Even as we realize, even as we pay attention to the relative level and act appropriately, we still stay connected to the wisdom of the more absolute level. And so this union, I feel, is really the, uh, the ripening, you know, the maturing of the spiritual journey. It was expressed really well by the Korean Zen master, uh, Sansani. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever... He travels a lot, Sung San. <laughs> One of his many good lines is in talking about this. He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. <laughs> and that's it. We need to hold both. There's no right and no wrong on the ultimate level. And yet right is right and wrong is wrong. And we honor that. The same thing with different kinds of thoughts and emotions. On the absolute level, it's all empty phenomena. And we can have this experience very easily in meditation practice, and I'm sure you all have, where you're sitting and thoughts are coming and going and it really doesn't matter, the content is irrelevant because we're simply aware of them as passing thoughts which we're not caught in, we're not identified with, they all self-liberate and so the discrimination at that level between unwholesome and wholesome it does not matter. And yet on the relative level of being either lost in thought or choosing to act on them the discrimination between what are wholesome thoughts and what are unwholesome thoughts, or skillful and unskillful, is essential. Because as we act on them, either consciously, by choice, or unconsciously, by simply being lost in them, it has consequences. And this is, you know, what Padmasambhava said, as I mentioned yesterday, tension to the law of karma as fine as a grain of barley flour even with a view as expansive as the sky. So on the relative level, right is right, wrong is wrong, we need to understand the skill or unskill of our various motivations. <coughs> as we free ourselves from the contraction of mind around experience, whether it's around different objects or the fixation on awareness itself, as the mind releases, as it frees from any holding at all. So there are moments or more than moments of genuine non-grasping. Then the mind quite spontaneously begins to respond to situations from a place of kindness and from a place of compassion and love because self is no longer the reference point. I just want to read part of a wonderful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye and it's called Kindness and it really captures a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of how compassion or kindness or love 
comes when we let in all the aspects of our experience, when we let in the suffering. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There's, there's a wonderful sense of um, both inspiration and relief in our practice as we begin to get the sense, as the Dalai Lama was pointing out in his you know, response to unworthiness, that really our deepest place, almost natural place of response is kindness, is compassion. But that is the natural expression of emptiness of selflessness. And compassion is the expression of this emptiness precisely because at that time we are not frozen in the sense of I, in the contraction of I. Self is no longer or in that moment the reference point. And so the question was we mentioned the question yesterday, well, why is compassion the natural expression of emptiness? Why isn't it aversion? You know, if everything's empty, why aren't we naturally aversive <laughs> rather than naturally kind? Well, when we look, when we investigate, we see that aversion and all the other unskillful states of mind are rooted in fixation, they're, again, mixed metaphor, they're rooted in ice. Right? All the unwholesome, unskillful states of mind come out precisely of that mind that's contracted into a sense of self. And so when that's released, then it's no longer, those are no longer the driving forces. It's explained actually in another way, very simply, in the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology. And I don't know if you've done any reading or study of it, but it's a very interesting analysis of this mind-body process, very sophisticated. I mean, it, it's a much deeper and more comprehensive analysis of this system than Western psychology. You know, it's, it's microscopic, 
and its understanding. Well, one of the teachings in the Abhidhamma, this was a recent discovery, I was just, I'm not an Abhidhamma scholar, and you know, it's, it's a vast subject, but every once in a while I just kind of leaf through some of the books and see what catches my eye. And there was one thing that I came across, <laughs> which was like the Abhidhamma explanation of just this point of how compassion or love is the expression of emptiness or selflessness. And it was describing how in all wholesome states of mind, that is when there is no delusion, you know, when there is no fixation, no contraction, in all the wholesome states of mind, it said that the mental factor of non-hatred is present. Okay, and what that means is, in the Abhidhamma, the wholesome states are described as non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Okay, so in every wholesome state, non-hatred is present. Non-hatred means friendliness, love. So that was, it's like, okay, in every moment that the mind is not fixated, love and friendliness are present. That was, I liked reading that. <laughs> because it was like from a totally other tradition, the same teaching. And when there's love and friendliness in the moment of the mind, unfrozen, when there's love and friendliness in the face of suffering, what happens? There's compassion. And so it all flows together so beautifully. We can practice this. <coughs> Again, it's not, it's not enough just you know, to delight in the theory of it. One example that happened It was a few years ago, it was, it was a striking example for me. Of how to practice the non-fixation which leads to love. I had been with a close friend and colleague, somebody I know for years, you know, like 25 years. And we were getting into it, you know, in not such a good way. You know, there's, I forget even now what the, the argument or the difficulty was about, but it was difficult. It was one of those you know, unpleasant, difficult conversations. So he was doing something and I was feeling either angry or defensive, or, you know, we were quite polarized. And then in the middle of it, I saw, I recognized what was happening, but I was getting very contracted. <coughs> and in that contraction, you know, this very uh, strong sense of separation from this, from this friend. And as I went into my body, as she was suggesting, I saw that there was really a great tightness in the heart, that, that the contraction of the aversion and the irritation and all the judgments, it's like I felt it right here. So in that moment, when I was bringing some attention to this whole experience, in that moment, feeling that, I just told myself, okay, relax the heart. So this was just on an energetic level. It wasn't, you know, oh, I should be more loving, or there's none of that. It just, I was feeling the energetic contraction. Okay, 
just let the heart relax. It was amazing. As I could feel the heart relaxing, letting go of the identification with the contraction, yeah, this is me and that's him, and relax the contraction, the mind opened to become the space which held us both. So instead of the limited, identified, fixated position, me here and the friend there, the heart opened, it became the space holding us both. What characterized that space was non-separation, because I was no longer identified with this as opposed to that, but rather more becoming the space holding both. What is the feeling of non-separation? It's metta. Yeah. It was amazing going from this big battle, relaxing the heart, becoming the space, and then really seeing, you know, the suffering and the compassion of just the whole situation. And it was such a good teaching in letting go, when the mind can let go of this grasping at of this being I. Because as long as there's an I, there's an other. And if we're in that mode, we're liable to all these kinds of difficulties. Now again, in that situation, it happened quite quickly. Sometimes it is in deference to James. <laughs> sometimes it might not happen so quickly. You know, there's sometimes kind of relax the heart and then... <laughs> so sometimes it might be a process that we need to go through. But it points to a way of practice and a way of understanding to make real the sudden awakening. Right? That it's not theoretical, it's not out in the future. It's relaxing the heart, letting go of the grip of clinging. So I think I'd like to just end this little piece by a teaching from Kensi Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan masters of this century. He was a really beautiful, um, very non-sectarian. I mean, it's just a tremendously open, expansive heart and mind and, and understanding. And he points again to this teaching that compassion and love and kindness is the natural expression of selflessness, of emptiness, we could say of wisdom. He said, when you, when you realize the true emptiness, selflessness of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing, non-conceptual compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to a notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never existed, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty, selfless nature, therefore, 
Any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes, and at the same time the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So I think as we continue our practice, in whatever way we frame it, whether you frame it as relative and absolute bodhicitta, of compassion and the empty innate wakefulness of mind, or whether you frame it in terms of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, or any other way. All the traditions have their own particular way of expressing it. But the basic message is the same. As we realize to a greater and greater extent the selfless nature of our being, Compassion begins to dawn, uncontrived and effortless. This, to me, seems the great beauty of the Dharma and the great beauty of our practice. So maybe take about 15 or 20 minutes for some walking and then we come back and if there are questions or comments, discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.